Que pasa, Mufasa? Ni hao. Salam alaikum. Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. We've got Justin Henka, co-founder and chief executive director of Mind Biotherapeutics on the podcast today. It certainly is a marathon, this sort of clinical science and going through clinical trials. So it, it, uh, there's some nuances to it, but we've got the full engagement of our local regulators who have provided over $2 million of funding now for our microdosing LSD clinical trials. Wonderful thing that we've been able to do is we've, we've got the approvals to microdose to our participants out in the community. So we give them two weeks of LSD that they take home with them. From our phase one trials, it's quite fascinating, it was 100% adherence to protocol. Not one person abused it, not one person said, well, now let's try the whole two weeks at once. The reason why the government gave the grant, the number one reason that they provided this money for these trials is they said the current treatments don't work and we must find better ways of treating mental health conditions. As always, it's a pleasure to host this podcast for you. And please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you are listening. Let's get this show on the road. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, what's up, everybody? It's an honor to be joined by Justin Hanka of Mind Biotherapeutics today. You're quite the jet setter, Justin. You've been all over the place in the last year. How are you doing today? Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. Well, thank you. It's, uh, I'm grateful that you invited me to attend. Uh, I'm, I'm quite exhausted, actually. I've lost my voice after uh, the Miami Convention. It was uh, just, a, just a whirlwind of meetings and discussions on this terrific area of psychedelic science. Yeah, and let's start there. You swept the Microdose Awards, I want to say. I saw that Mind Biotherapeutics was named Company of the Year at the Microdose Awards, also LSD Company of the Year. And you personally were awarded the distinction of Entrepreneur of the Year and Innovator of the Year. So congratulations on that. I guess it was a productive trip for you. Let's start with a little bit about your experience participating in the Wonderland Conference in Miami and connecting to the ever-broadening psychedelic ecosystem and industry. What are some of the key takeaways that that you had from your experience at Wonderland? Yeah, well, look, it was just, it was a whirlwind. Um, so, my, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a, an advocate of rigorous scientific inquiry, and that's why we're doing these clinical trials, these microdosing LSD clinical trials. They're quite unique uh, in the sector, and uh, every time I travel to a conference like this and I meet people that have been microdosing, uh, and they come and tell me their experiences and how it's been transformative, it's changed their lives. And uh, so whilst we're sort of getting at the science, there are people, millions of people around the world that are doing this. I didn't know that when I started the company. I just started it because I thought it'd be a good idea to try and change the course of mental health treatments with these psychedelic medicines, which shows so much promise. Sure. And MindBio has pioneered a multidisciplinary approach to creating clinically proven mental health treatments. And I would love it if you could describe a little bit about this multidisciplinary approach for us and how is it different and unique to currently existing models deployed in the psychedelic assisted therapy ecosystem. Yeah, well, my business partner and I, we have a, uh, you know, we have a technology sort of background, and uh, so it was natural for us to kind of integrate, uh, you know, uh, digital therapies and technologies into um, the, these treatments. So uh, it really starts with firstly the clinical science around um, microdosing LSD and trying to figure out firstly whether it's safe and it's effective. So we've done that now. We've, we've, we've solved the sort of the, the riddle on microdosing LSD. We know it's safe, can be safely taken for a period of time, uh, and it's effective at uh, regulating changing mood. And so what we're doing is we're looking at, we're collecting masses of data uh, and using that data to understand the individual sort of idiosyncrasies of a person's unique uh, health profile and how this drug might affect one person over another. Yeah, and I'd love to dive into that and to ask you about how much of the subjective experience of an LSD microdosing experience are you able to quantify or qualify? Because 
you know, there's this growing microdosing subculture, as previously mentioned, and people claim that microdosing LSD and psilocybin and other things can enhance productivity, improve mood. We know this stuff, right? But there's a lot of subjectivity, it seems to it, because you're dealing with a substance that can evoke mystical states is how it's traditionally been described. And people describe these mystical states. So I'm curious about some of the qualifiers or some of the data points that you're focusing on to be able to quantify and qualify in a more rigorous scientific capacity, some of these more subjective experiences that traditionally have been framed as a more mystical experience? Yeah, that's a, a terrific questions. And, um, you know, I find the, the science just fascinating, really. I'm just intrigued. And uh, we have a terrific collaboration uh, with our scientific collaborators uh, that work out of a university in Australasia. And um, so the, the hypothesis was when they set out to do these clinical trials was that we know people are microdosing in the community. And what they say is when they microdose LSD, uh, they feel sharper, they feel more attentive, and they feel more creative. And then so we, the hypothesis was, let's just, let's just test that. Uh, and the scientists wanted to know why, what's the, what's the mechanism, what's the action. So we set about doing those trials. It was four, it's taken four years to complete the, a phase one trial. It's the largest uh, uh, safety trial ever been completed with LSD and microdosing. And, um, and uh, we're very pleased to say that, uh, that uh, you know, the microdoses are right. Uh, on microdose day, people are happier. They feel more socially connected. They've got more energy. Um, they're more creative uh, and they've got this kind of feeling of well-being and uh, so that data is quite important for uh, the next stage of clinical trials in, in we think this, that microdosing LSD will be effective in treating uh, depression uh, because when people are depressed they you know what do they say they say I don't have I don't have any energy I'm not interested in the things I'm normally interested in uh, I, I, I don't feel as socially connected I don't want to go out anymore I don't want to see my friends so all these features of, of this drug and what we've known from, the, from, from what people are telling us, um, we've seen that in the trials. Now, in a microdosing perspective, people don't have this mystical experience in, when they microdose. Uh, so there's a general feeling of well-being and microdose day is a good day. That's probably what we can say about microdosing. Uh, but we certainly are, I mean, I think we're on the microdosing curve, but um, you know, on the, if you're on the macrodosing side of things, yeah, this is a whole different uh, ball game of uh, experiences that people have when they talk about this mystical experience and the connection with, any, with everything and anything. And those concepts have fascinated me and the science now is proving what they're saying. Wonderful. And I'd love to hear about why specifically mind biotherapeutics chose to focus on LSD, because there's a cornucopia of molecules that people are researching now. And I feel like a lot of the literature, a lot of the clinical trials and the studies that have been coming out are more focused traditionally in the last decade on psilocybin or on dimethyltryptamine and, you know, this, that, and the other. And I really want to say that MindBio is one of the first companies that really came onto my radar that's explicitly focused at the moment on doing clinical trials with LSD. So what was the discussion like around why you decided to focus on LSD? And do you suppose there's any particular strategic advantages to focusing on developing microdosing protocols using LSD and, and therapeutics using LSD versus any of the other classic psychedelic substances that people are researching and experimenting and using? Look, the first thing I'd like to say is I'm, I'm an advocate for the scientific inquiry of these substances. So, you know, we, we obviously have a thesis around our treatment philosophy, and that is that uh, microdosing LSD would be effective for depression. What we like about microdosing is that it's scalable. So people can take the microdose of LSD, and then they can get on with their day in the same way they would 
as they would take any other medication. Uh, and that's different to a macrodosing approach where it's a, there's a whole lot of preparation, there's a day in the a clinic, there's a transformative mystical experience that people talk of that they go through, and then there's a whole lot of integration, important integration uh, to, to help that person over time. So it's less disruptive. We believe it's scalable. We're, you know, we're interested in getting these treatments out to, to, to people at scale all over the world and cost-effectively. And so LSD has been around for, for decades. It was developed in the 30s by Albert Hoffman, discovered it accidentally, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was used broadly in science until it was, it was banned. And uh, they were experimenting in psychiatric hospitals, and I think it was Sandoz was just sending out you know, hundreds of litres of, of LSD to clinical scientists all around the world to do research. It's unfortunate it was banned because what we're finding now is that actually this could transform um, you know, mental health uh, treatments. Uh, and so we're, you know, I'm, I'm keen to get to the science as quickly as possible. We've got phase two trials coming up. And if I see positive data out of it, open label phase 2A, I'm very keen to get to the regulators about getting the treatments out sooner rather than later. I would love to hear a little bit about, I'd love to hear about the timeline for these phase two trials. You mentioned it took about four years to complete the research that you've completed so far. And I know that there's nothing quick or extremely expedient about dealing with regulators and bringing these slightly controversial and increasingly less controversial substances to market. So is there a projected timeline in terms of when you're hopeful that people who qualify for these treatments will be able to legally access them? Yeah, look, it certainly is a marathon, this sort of clinical science and going through clinical trials. So it, it, uh, there's some nuances to it. But we've got the full uh, engagement of, uh, of our reg local regulators who have provided over $2 million of funding now for our microdosing LSD clinical trials. Uh, and the, the, the wonderful thing that we've been able to do is we've, we've got the approvals to microdose to our participants out in the community. So we give them two weeks of LSD that they take home with them. Uh, and from our phase one trials, it's quite fascinating, it was 100% adherence to protocol. Not one person abused it. Not one person said, well, now let's try the whole two weeks at once. Uh, so it was a, a really good demonstration of it's a, a, a terrific interaction between the corporate of MindBio, um, academics um, that are interested in this sort of independent scientific inquiry, and then also the government that's supporting us. Uh, and the, the reason why the government gave the grant, the, 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 the number one reason that they provided this money for these trials is they said the current treatments don't work. Uh, and we must find better better ways of treating mental health conditions. Sure, yeah, that's totally understandable. So I'd love to dive into a little bit about how you go about qualifying participants or people involved in these clinical trials. And is that something you can speak about and tell us a little bit like, you know, was there a specific demographic that you were targeting? And how did you go about, you know, procuring the participants for these phase one trials? Well, there's no, there's no shortage of volunteers for these trials, absolutely, that, you know, really has captivated people. And, uh, you know, we, we sort of, uh, we've got, you know, thousands of people that sort of uh, email us every day in context that want to participate. Um, but these are randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials. So the, there's some rigour around how uh, participants are selected. Interestingly, in the phase one, it was um, 80 healthy male participants that were randomised into the trial. Uh, so there's some reasons why uh, male participants are cho chosen for the phase one trials. There's some sort of controversy around uh, all of that. And I'm interested in sort of uh, obviously the, the introduction of, uh, of women, you know, sex at birth into phase two trials, we, which we must do. 
Uh, but certainly in phase one, we've, we've done it with 80 healthy male participants who were just randomised from the, the general population. We do look at the cultural uh, aspects too. It's quite interesting. Uh, the academics that we deal with are just, uh, just wonderful, uh, um, broad thinkers, and, and we are enjoying the way that they are uh, in inclusive of uh, different cultures. Uh, we have a, uh, a, an Indigenous cultural consultant uh, to our clinical trials. Uh, because we in the New Zealand population, it's, it's a high Maori population, and we need to ensure that uh, we include, we're inclusive of that population, uh, and even to having elders coming into the clinical trial rooms and blessing the rooms beforehand and so forth. So all of these sort of measures, I think, including people in, it's engagement, it's engaging the community, it's engaging the governments uh, in a very positive experience. And look, to be frank with you, when I started this out, and I, I put my own money in, my business partner, we put our own money into this, we started it, we funded it ourselves, we brought investors in. The scientists said to me, Justin, don't expect anything from phase one, right? So it was a, it was a real sort of, uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a strong hypothesis and we've, the hypothesis is, uh, you know, has proved to be, you know, I guess, true, that's the, the terminology to use. Uh, so we're really pleased and we're encouraged. So um, now my work is getting a lot louder into phase two trials because, um, you know, this, is, show, this showing, is showing promise for treating depressed patients. Sure. And I know that you're using the rigorous scientific process and data to drive this conversation, which obviously is a lot. People are more ready to hear that than, you know, traditionally the people sharing subjective experiences, which also has a lot of value, I think. But I wanted to mention a little bit about the, the cultural baggage historically attached to LSD, specifically in the United States. Right. Is that it, as you mentioned, it was legal and that there were, you know, tons of people who were using this in a therapeutic and, and uh, legal capacity. And then maybe some people got carried away with it. And I think that there's, you know, some always the potential for the marketing and the, the corporatization of these experiences to somehow, you know, get a little bit ahead of themselves where people get too excited without having the data to back it up when, without having, you know, the regulatory scrutiny to back it up. So I just want to know, do you think that, uh, that from what you've seen are the science, the scientific circles that you operate in and the conversations that you have at those levels, are people willing to look at LSD as a legitimate treatment or do you still feel like there's a stigma around it and that you're working to mitigate that stigma? Well, that's a, a really good question. And uh, let me tell you something. So I'm, a, I'm an investment banker by trade. Uh, and so when I set out to you know, get investors into this company, I was very worried about what they might think about LSD. And uh, because uh, you know, I come from a very conservative part of the world, uh, certainly uh, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with these, these uh, substances. I didn't know anything about them. Uh, and uh, so I was concerned, but I probably needn't have been as concerned as I was uh, because I think what, what people choose to embrace is the mental health message. And we're very strong on the mental health message, and um, that's what we're here to do. We're here to change the course of mental health treatments. If our phase one uh, clinical trials weren't positive, we would have pivoted to some other treatment. We want to do something good for mental health. You know, it's not good enough that the leading cause of death in young people, uh, where I'm from, is death by suicide. Uh, it's not good enough that the second leading cause of death is uh, death by accidental, accidental overdose. Um, and so, you know, these sort of the things that are driving us, are driving me, and um, we have had tremendous support. There is still a lot of stigma. So, for instance, on, on our social communications, for instance, you know, we would, even our investors found it a bit difficult to kind of get behind some of our social media posts talking about LSD. Uh, so I did have to dial that back down, back to a kind of a mental health message and a softly, softly approach. 
uh, and certainly being a, you know an investment banker with us, we deal with data and numbers all day long, and uh, so we're very cautious about making any claims about this that that, that weren't real. Uh, but I can tell you now that uh, we have the data and everything that everyone in Silicon Valley who's doing LSD microdosing, they're right. Got the data. Eye-opening revelation to me. I went to school in San Francisco and I fell in with a community of kind of virtual reality pioneers. And I realized that through talking to them that a lot of these people were highly motivated and inspired by the psychedelic experiences that were they were having, which translated into a good deal of the early tech that happened and I think is still happening right now. And you know, I think that's kind of an open secret in Silicon Valley that's starting to get out more. But that was something that I was really surprised to learn is that, you know, Timothy Leary and some of these characters were actually like pretty embedded with Silicon Valley tech circles, too, and that there was a lot of overlap between the psychedelic community. You know, I think that there's it's not an accident that Golden Gate Park and Haight Street and the you know San Francisco psychedelic legacy is a stone's throw away from Silicon Valley. And there's, you know, a number of luminaries such as Steve Jobs and Bill Gates have kind of referenced or open or openly addressed in some cases how LSD was tremendously transformative in their own lives and, and beneficial for them. So I think really, from my perspective, it's so important about the regulation and the set and setting and that we have, you know, honest conversations about these are great tools. These can be great tools, but it's not a catch all necessarily. They have to be deployed in a very strategic and calculated way, you know, when you're taking it, what you're doing, who you're with and things like that. So I think there's, you know, a lot of conversations happening in the space right now about set and setting. And we're starting to see these different approaches kind of come up against each other where you have the medicalized model of psychedelics then you also have of course indigenous models and uh, so it's you know quite a, a broad conversation right now as we move forward together with this industry because i think everyone recognizes these can be tremendously therapeutic and beneficial tools and for helping to um, transform mental health which is something you know we've heard a lot but like how do we actually do this in the safest possible way in the most rigorous beneficial way without you know getting carried away and seeing another bubble like maybe what happened 50 years ago or so the first time we had uh, you know, a broad psychedelic renaissance on the global stage. So yeah, just my, some perspectives I wanted to offer there. But I, I'd like to hear about uh, moving forward, you know, the timeline for mind biotherapeutics. Uh, what are some of the things you're currently working on? You mentioned that you're preparing to embark on the phase two clinical trials. You're going to conferences, you're winning awards. I think you were at Malta, I saw, and maybe you'll be back there. But, you know, what can we expect if we're from the outside looking in on this trajectory forward for mind biotherapeutics? Yeah, certainly from my perspective, we, we need to continue to educate uh, people about the uh, about obviously the benefits and obviously the potential pitfalls of these medicines. I mean, we're still early in the science. There are not many uh, companies that are that are you know, through phase one, phase two clinical trials. And you know, if if, it, if I had but a billion dollars, I would take all of the classics and I'd run them through microdosing and macrodosing trials all the way to th phase three. Because then we'd have a matrix of, psych you know, of psychedelic data, and we would be able to we'd be able to tell which substances were effective and what they do and who they benefit and so forth. But unfortunately, we don't have that. We don't have that unlimited pile of money. So in so what we're doing in our company is we're kind of doing that on a micro scale uh, with microdosing. So we'll we will progress two phase two clinical trials in Q1 next year, LSD microdosing in depressed patients. Uh, and in a separate phase two trial in patients um, experiencing end of life distress uh, who, who have got are in palliative care and have cancer. Um, so there are two important clinical trials that we're working on. Uh, we're also working on digital in interventions and some technologies sitting behind that and, and supporting underneath that. It's going to be very important to 
um, to collating the data and building the protocols and building the safety protocols that we're going to present to governments. Um, so this is a real data play uh, for us. Um, it's a, uh, I think, um, I think other clinical trials are going to be a stand on the on the shoulders of what the work we've done. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, we know now that um, microdosing in a lab is pointless. Uh, you, you, you can't talk about set and setting. It's not going to work. You can't get you can't get a psychometric bump in, in a lab when someone's got a, a cannula in their arm and they take, you've got an EG cap on and they're being prodded in, the, in, a, in a blank room and they're bored for seven hours. Uh, it's when they are at home and when they're getting on with their day and the nuances of, uh, of getting on with their day-to-day -day activities that we see these substantial responses in creativity and energy and feelings of wellness and connectedness to partners and so forth. And, um, we're really interested in understanding, you know, we've just this done a top, top line reading of the phase one data. We've collected uh, bloods and, and um, uh, DNA and, and, and so forth. And we're going, to be, we're going to be looking at all of that information over the coming sort of year and a half as we progress our phase two clinical trials. Um, so there's a lot of work to do. Sure. Well, I know that you're extremely busy and you're tired. You just flew all the way from Miami to Melbourne, which is a fantastic city, by the way. I've been there before. I'm a fan of the Melbourne Kangaroos, I believe the Aussie Rules football team and quite a lovely city. So I hope to make it back sometime. And I want to thank you again, Justin Hanka from MindBioTherapeutics for joining us on the Micropreneur podcast. We're rooting for you and thank you for all the great work that you've been doing. And we're looking forward to following the trajectory of the company. Thanks, Dennis. It's been great to talk to you. Um, yeah, keep an eye on us. We, we didn't mention that we are spinning out and listing on the CSE shortly. So there's a shareholder vote and we'll be listed in our own right and it'll be a public company. And, um, you know, we're just grateful for all the support. Uh, psychedelics have a lot more to teach us than just the drug itself. It's something I've learned. Uh, it's a terrific industry and um, and I'm just grateful that you've invited me to uh, on your podcast, Dennis. Thank you. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, micopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.